Now, before we dive into our text this morning, let's look again at verse 1 and to kind of set the scene. We read that in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, when it comes to the topic of conflict resolution within church life, the most fundamental point that you need to understand is that you will never find a perfect church. It's impossible. This side of heaven, you'll never find a perfect church community or for that matter, a perfect pastor. It's been pointed out that the only condition that you need for the potential of human conflict is the presence of just two people. When two or more are gathered, Jesus is in our midst, but there's all kinds of opportunities for complications. You see, squabbles and discord will always be inevitable when we seek to coexist in any type of community. The church is no different. Now, as we dig into chapter 6, you need to keep in mind that approximately three years has transpired since the birth of the church there at the day of Pentecost. The birth, this new movement, it was sudden. Its impact, as, we, as we've seen, was incredible. The growth, immediate. This first century, Holy Spirit-filled, apostolic-led church, as awesome and as glorious and as impactful as it was, well, it still needed time to mature, and it was not immune from problems. According to verse 1, the core complaint centered around the Hellenist claim that their widows were being neglected through this daily distribution of resources, while it seemed that the Hebrew widows were receiving some type of preferential treatment to make matters worse. According to Acts 2 and Acts 4, not only were the widows being neglected through the daily distribution, but the apostles were in charge of the daily distribution. They were being overlooked and not cared for appropriately by the A-team. Now keep in mind, Luke, he does nothing in our text to dismiss the reality that these Hellenistic widows were actually being neglected. The complaint here was valid. The complaint was sincere. The complaint was real. These women were being neglected. And yet at the same time, keep in mind that Luke also provides no indication that the neglect, this real genuine neglect, was intentional. As a matter of fact, it seems to be implied that it was kind of an accident. The scene that Luke establishes in verse 1, neglected widows, upset Hellenists, oblivious apostles. It sets the stage for a potential messy and divisive situation. Satan has been trying to attack and diminish this work of God. From threats to infiltration to persecution, he's tried to derail the work that God was doing. And yet now, in chapter 6, Satan is shifting his strategy to a new mechanism, a divide-and-conquer strategy. And a real problem, as we see in this passage, presented for Satan the perfect opportunity to achieve a destructive result. You see, if any one party, widows, the Hellenists, the apostles, the Hebrews, if any aspect, any of the people involved, the offended party, the offending party, if they didn't seek to handle this situation in a godly and appropriate way, Satan would have been able to gain a foothold, to divide, 
to conquer, to destroy what God was seeking to do through this church. The stakes when it comes to church conflict are indeed high. Now, last Sunday, we looked at the way the offended party handled this situation, the Hellenists. We noted how their complaint did not demonstrate an attitude of ungratefulness, and the way that they handled their concern revealed that their motivation was genuine, that it was sincere. They didn't take the matter public. There's a difference between a complaint and complaining. And this word complaint indicated that it was indeed a grievance, but it was a grievance kept in secret. It kept, they kept it private. They took it directly to the offending party. Thus, there wasn't a schism or some uh, big, big to-do about what was happening. Their motivation was sincere, genuine. They wanted the problem dealt with. They wanted to maintain unity. So last Sunday, we looked at how the, uh, the offended handled the situation. Good lesson for all of us. But this morning, we're going to see how the offending party, these apostles, handled the situation. Let's continue. Verse 2, chapter 6. Then, speaks of kind of uh, immediately, instantly, as soon as they heard, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, the first thing that the apostles, the offending party here, first thing they did right was that they did not dismiss the complaint. The Hellenists come, they bring their concern, and the apostles are not dismissive. From the flow of the text, it would seem that the apostles listened intently to the the complaint, to what these Hellenists had to say. They took their, their concerns genuinely to heart. They didn't dismiss the rebuke. They didn't make excuses as to why the widows were being neglected. The apostles didn't claim some type of of spiritual superiority to be above such criticisms. Instead, what's implied from our text is that these 12 men, these apostles, the Hellenists bring the complaint. Listen, man, our widows are being neglected. I know you're not doing it intentionally, but it's still happening. It's a problem. It's causing a divide. It It can give Satan a foothold. The apostles are listening. And they showed incredible leadership. And they demonstrated great humility by submitting themselves to those that were under their care. You know, it's sad. But the reaction of the apostles, the way the apostles handled this complaint, is more of an outlier to the way most in church leadership handle complaints and grievances. And I'm just being honest. From someone on the other end of it, the other side of the pulpit, it pains me to admit that most And church leadership don't handle these type of situations well. They don't. It's a simple reality. Pastors are not perfect people. We'll make mistakes inadvertently, sometimes advertently. We're sinners just like you. We're flawed people. And yet, unlike these apostles, often because of pride or ego, or simply the reality that many pastors already feel unappreciated or might be struggling with discouragement, it can be hard to acknowledge failure. (laughs) We take this stuff very seriously. I mean, this is kind of our life's work. Complaints can strike deep within the heart of a minister. 
It can be difficult to admit fault. It's hard not to take criticisms personally. Now, to be fair, the reason many complaints, even valid ones, are perceived to be a personal attack by those in leadership and the reaction ends up being less than desirable is because in many instances, the complaints are actually used by the offended to attack the pastor. Like we kind of wonder why the pastor sometimes reacts defensively as if he's under assault. It's often because, well, he's under assault. Like things are not handled right. The old adage that hurting people hurt is true even for Christians. Sadly, people will use their gripes to sow seeds of discord among the church, among the brethren, because they feel wronged. Many times, the hurting person, unlike the Hellenist, will pursue vengeance or restitution, not reconciliation or unity. Without fully understanding the repercussions of their actions, these people will air their complaints publicly. They don't take what Jesus said to go to the brother, to take the matter to the person who's offended you, the brother who sinned against you. They take it publicly first. They air their complaints first. And they do it. Let's be honest. Often, sometimes, on the occasion, with the intention of attacking and undermining the pastor. And in doing so, they not only limit the chance to win a brother, but in the end, Satan has provided a perfect opportunity to destroy what God might be seeking to do in that church. Understand, friend, if you've been hurt by someone within the church, and it'll happen. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. We're fallen people. We can be prideful, we can be insensitive, we can be jerks. You're going to be hurt, you're going to be sinned against. And how you handle that is of the utmost importance. It can cause disunity and can be used by Satan for destructive purposes. Or it can be handled the right way. And understand, the reason these apostles were able to handle the situation with such grace really boiled down to the way in which the Hellenists handled their complaint and refusing to air their grievances in public and instead bringing their concerns directly to the apostles, these Hellenists demonstrated that their motivation was sincere, that they desired the outcome to be the furtherance of the gospel, the unification of the church, and the glory of God. They wanted unity to be achieved, but they also wanted the issue to be handled because they came to the apostles out of love, out of respect, even out of a sincere hurt. There was no reason or no justification for the apostles to take their complaint personally. The appropriate way in which the complaint was presented, it established the perfect atmosphere, the perfect environment by which the criticism could be received by the apostles and a solution achieved. They took this complaint seriously. They took it to heart. They weren't dismissive. Two things, two groups of people handling it the way Jesus told us to ends up yielding the right outcome. Now, the second thing that the apostles did right was that they owned up to the problem. They didn't dismiss the complaint and they owned it. At this point in the life of the church, it would seem that the apostles had two fundamental jobs within church life. First, they cared for the spiritual needs of the people through prayer and the teaching of God's word. We've seen this already demonstrated in the communal life. 
The second role that the apostles seemed to have as well, in addition to caring for the spiritual needs, was that they cared for the physical needs as well. Uh, the, The physical needs of the people through this daily distribution of resources. So the apostles, at this point, as we get into chapter six, they have two hats, two jobs, two roles. They care for the spiritual needs and their job is to care for the physical needs. Now in stating that it was not desirable, that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. I don't believe the apostles were diminishing the care of widows. Or in some ways that the apostles were saying that the service of widows was somehow beneath the role of apostle. I don't think that's what they're saying at all. I think instead these men were affirming the reality that both the spiritual and the physical needs of this church, the two hats that they were wearing at this juncture had simply grown beyond what they could manage or handle effectively. And I give them credit for being honest. The apostles. I mean, they learned from Jesus, right? The son of God who could perfectly balance all aspects of ministry, who could handle the spiritual needs and the physical needs and the, I mean, Jesus, the perfect pastor, well, because he was perfect. And the apostles are looking at Jesus, their type, their model, the guy they interned with. They're trying to do it all too. And they come to this point of realization that, wait a second, though Jesus might've been able to handle it all, it's becoming evident that we can't. You see, the apostles were being stretched thin. The care of the widows, it was an oversight, it wasn't intentional, but it happened. The time necessary, the time that they needed, the energy that they needed to care for all of the needs had simply exceeded what they had available. See, they came to a point of self-realization because everything in the life of this church flowed through the apostles because all needs relied on the apostles to make a decision or to handle it personally. Widows, were neglected. That's tragic. And it is tragic because everything funneled down to these 12 men in a church that exceeded about 10 to 15,000 people. Ministry stagnated. It was more difficult to care for people. Problems, genuine problems arose. The poorest among them, the group of people Jesus cared for so deeply, spoke of so highly, they were being neglected. They weren't getting food. This was horrible. And as good leaders, the apostles, they recognized that the problem, well, the problem wasn't the widows. Well, good grief. I mean, maybe you could go on a diet or something. Like you extend out the little bit that we could get. No, they didn't make excuses. They didn't go after them. They didn't attack it. Rather, they looked inward and they said, you know what? This is happening. We can't excuse it away. And really, when it's all said and done, the reason this is happening is because of us. We can't do it all. We're stretched thin. We're at the end of our rope. We're depleted in regards to our resources. They knew that what was taking place was unacceptable. And the apostles determined that something needed to change immediately. You see, the final thing that the apostles did right was that they presented a wise solution. 
So they didn't dismiss the complaint. They owned to their own part of it. They were the problem, and now they presented a solution. Since the problem, at its core, highlighted the growing inability of the apostles to effectively care for all of the needs of the church, spiritual and physical, they make a very important decision in our text. First, these apostles defined their job description. Check out the way that this passage is structured. Because there's a transitional word, there's an idea presented, a transitional word that then links two other concepts. And defining their role, read it, it says, since it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In essence, because we can't do it all, we can't care for the spiritual needs and the physical needs, it's grown too big for our uh, simple abilities. We're insufficient, we're inadequate, therefore... We, speaking of the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the first thing they did, they see that there's a problem and they present a solution for themselves. Like they define their roles. This is happening. Therefore, listen, we need to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. But then secondly, they delegated the rest of the work to qualified servants. So they defined their job, then they delegated the work. Since it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, therefore, what does he say? Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, before we dig into the nitty-gritty here, I want to make a simple observation. It's important. Though it was a group of Hellenists who recognized and presented this concern, it was the Hellenists that came to the apostles and said, hey, we, as a church, as a community, we have a problem. This is what's taking place. It's not good. But though the Hellenists presented the concern, it was the leadership of the church, the apostles, who shouldered the responsibility to present a solution. See, the apostles, they didn't discuss the problem to death nor did they beat themselves up over their inabilities, insufficiencies, or inadequacies. The apostles didn't form a committee or place the burden of finding the solution onto those who felt wrong. Wow, this is happening. Well, let's form a committee. Let's figure out the the intricacies of really what the problem is. And then we should form a subcommittee to start to present the varying options of how we can go about You see, they didn't shift responsibility to find a solution to the people presenting the problem. Hey, yeah, there's a problem. All right, fix it. No, they took that upon themselves, and they did what good leaders do. And recognizing a need, they recognized that this need, it presented a unique opportunity. It's been said that unmet needs present a great way to bring more people into service. And the apostles see this. There's a need. It's our job to present a solution. Our solution is that, well, we need more people in the ministry. Like, we need more people helping us take care of all of these needs. The leadership, they acted promptly, openly. They call the people together and inclusively. I like this. It's important understand that one type of neglect does not necessitate another form of neglect. 
in regards to this situation, it would have been detrimental if in order to meet the physical needs of these widows, the apostles in turn neglected the spiritual needs of the church. Don't forget, the apostles are shouldering all the responsibility. They're wearing two hats. This situation revealed that they're having a hard time managing both. So they realize we need to define our job. We need to delegate responsibility. If they hadn't done that, if instead they were like, well, we just got to focus on some better time management. We got to figure out how we can go about doing this. It would have harmed the church. And this brings up an important reality when it comes to ministry. Though meeting the physical needs of the people is vitally important to a church community. Let me say that again. Meeting the physical needs of the people in the church is vitally important to a healthy church. I'm not dismissing or dis diminishing that at all. But caring for the spiritual needs of the church is the pastor's main responsibility. I've heard it said that the one unpardonable, unforgivable sin that a pastor can commit is to neglect the study and teaching of God's word. I believe that. Though the spiritual needs of this church were at this point still being met, the physical needs of the people had taken a back seat. That's what created the significant problem. But please note, the reason these widows had been neglected it hadn't been malfeasance on the part of the apostles, but instead, it had been a simple failure by these leaders to define their roles, to delegate responsibilities early in their ministry, and to remedy the problem. The solution to the issue is that the apostles decide to create and to define organizational structure and then establish a mechanism to recruit new servants to help meet the practical needs. They're like, wow, we can't do it all, and this is, this is lacking, but our main job is prayer and the spiritual needs. We can't sacrifice this, but we need help with this. And so they're like, please help us. We can't sacrifice dealing with the spiritual needs of the people. We can't lay on the altar the study of God's word or prayer. It would be worse for you. But we can't do it all, and so we need help. And in the end, the organization that they would form would, for the most part, result into two basic categories. Elders, who cared for the spiritual needs of the church, and deacons, who cared for the physical needs of the church. You know, by definition, a living organism must be organized. Life, life never exists in chaos. If your body is in chaos, you are dying quickly. That's the reality. Chaos never breeds life, and this is true in the physical world as it is for the spiritual one. And while, and while non-denominational churches often shy away from too much organization, organizational structure, because, well, it's true, complex bureaucracies can and will stifle life. We see it over and over and over again. Monday through Friday, I teach a Bible class at a large Baptist church. And to get any decision made takes forever. 
like literally, I got a new iPad, and I'm like, man, I need the Wi-Fi password. Do you know how many committees this has had to go through for me to just get the Wi-Fi password so I can email grades back to the school? It's unbelievable. Major bureaucracies, committees, on top of committees, on top of subcommittees and little committees and committees of one. Like it takes so long with too much organization that the life, the decision-making, it stifles, it's stagnant, it's slow. And what happens in the meantime, needs go unmet in the process of it all. So we know that too much organization can be a bad thing. And yet, if the church is to be a living, breathing instrument by which the Spirit of God carries forth the will of Jesus throughout the world, organization must exist in the church. Now, there are those who believe that it is wise to allow organization to develop as the needs within a church arise. Matter of fact, I had one pastor who was advising me of this very fact uh, with the development of Calvary 316. He even pointed to this passage. Hey, it was three years before they ever started talking about deacons. But the problem is, is that, yeah, and the only reason they started talking about it is because widows weren't eating like, that's a problem. Like, you see, I think on, on one aspect, there is, a, there is a danger in a church establishing too much structure or organization prematurely. I mean, the one thing worse than having elders, than not having elders, is having the wrong elders. Like, be careful who you put into leadership. But Acts 6 seems to imply that there is also a real danger in a church, even, even of our size not considering these things or thinking forward. Tragically, many pastors get into the same type of trouble we find here in Acts 6 when they don't proactively structure the church in such a way that it can handle growing pains, that it can avoid situations where either spiritual or physical needs of people slip through the cracks. Heaven forbid, as leaders, that because we're not forward-thinking or proactive, we allow needs to go unmet. Let me provide an example of a common problem that taking the latter approach can have to a growing church. Most sociologists reason that a full-time pastor can effectively care for the spiritual and physical needs of a church that numbers around 150 people. That's if he's working full-time. Because the needs of a church of this size are rather simple. I mean, financials, not that difficult. You only have one person on payroll as it is. So you don't have to worry about too much of that. Ministries are simple. Facility needs are simple. The church of 150 people has simple needs, which enables the pastor to have plenty of time to visit with folks in the hospital, to attend recitals and graduations, to officiate weddings and funerals, to do counseling, to have dinner with almost everybody in the church family. He can also, while doing all of this, balance his life, take care of his family, and still have at least two days a week, as far as I figure, to appropriately spend time on his Sunday Bible study. That's 150 people. But something happens very subtly. You see, this church, without really knowing it, you kind of blink and it happens, it goes from 150 people to 225. And now, 
the pastor? Well, he finds himself struggling to manage the same set of responsibilities he once found pretty easy. And at this point, because the pastor is inadequate to meet all of the needs of this number of people, and because there's no structure in place to alleviate this burden, one of five things typically follows. One, the pastor gets burnt out and quits. So you go from a pastor who's not effectively meeting all of the needs to a pastor who's like, not going to meet any of your needs because he's gone. He's gone. He's running so thin. He feels so inadequate. He's so depressed because even his best is not fundamentally able to care for all the needs. So every week, he's doing all that he can. He's giving 110%, but things are still falling through the cracks. People are still calling him up complaining. He's still getting ridiculed and accused of not caring. And so at some point, it can't continue, and he'll throw in the towel, or he will do it all. And what ends up happening is horrible, because his family will end up suffering neglect. You know, a typical pastor from the kind of ministry that I grew up in, it's a 60-hour work week, give or take. But as the needs continue to grow, a pastor, because he loves people and he cares about what he's doing and he shoulders this responsibility in a unique way, he starts working longer hours and harder hours. He stops taking care of himself. He stops taking care of his family. He's never at home. This is one of the things that Billy Graham says he regrets the most. He did it all, and as a result, his family suffered from neglect. Can't tell you how many pastors have stepped out of ministry because their wife said, you're going to do that or me and the kids are gone. It's a shame. The third thing that can happen is that in this dynamic, the pastor's Bible studies begin to suffer. I mean, because the physical needs are growing and he's running around. I mean, he's at the hospital four times a week. He's burying this person. This person uh, is getting married. He's doing this. He's got counseling. He's running around. He's mowing the yard. He's taking care of the facility. Because the physical needs are growing and become extreme, what ends up happening is he's like, I still got to have time for my family, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and all of this stuff begins to fill my calendar. Well, maybe a three-point outline for this passage and a little bit of wing in it. You know what? And I've heard people say this. I really don't have time to prepare, so I'm just going to rely on the Holy Spirit. Shame on you. Shame on you. Not to say that you shouldn't rely on the Holy Spirit. Good for you. But you have to have time. You have to have time. If, if you're interested in only a two-minute, if, if you're only interested in an okay Bible study, it only takes two minutes to get a hot pocket. But if you're wanting something with meat and substance that's good and put together and thought through, that takes time, friends. And what ends up happening is as the needs grow, the physical needs, and he's trying to do it all, maybe he begins to shift his focus more onto meeting the physical needs, and his study begins to suffer, and now he's committing the one sin that people won't forgive. 
You know, I found that people will forgive you if you don't make it to the recital, but people will leave the church if the Bible studies stink. It's the truth. A pastor has to have time for the word. Or maybe another thing happens. Because, well, the Bible study time is sacred. And he does a good thing. He commits the time. Nothing's going to take me away from the study of God's word and prayer. So the spiritual needs take priority. Well, what ends up happening is what happens in this passage. Now physical needs are slipping through the cracks because he's the only one that's handling it all. And people end up leaving the church because now they feel that the pastor is no longer accessible to them. You see, they, they used to enjoy being able to have the pastor's ear for anything. Pastor come over and have dinner, watch the ball game. You know, a church that gets to 225 people, you end up with enough people that like it becomes logistically impossible to have dinner with each couple in the church over the course of a year. Like I had one pastor friend that, that, that was ridiculed because, well, the church had grown. Had there been explosive growth, he was no longer able to do some of the same things he had done. And he was being criticized for it. And he gets up before the fellowship and he's like, listen, I hope you understand that if I just decide at this juncture that my role is going to be having dinner with you, that my wife and I will have dinner with another couple every night of the year and still not get through you all. So before you start complaining that the pastor's not, well, why can the pastor never come over and have dinner? Well, because logistically, that's, that's insane. Like, it's impossible. And sometimes, because there's not a delegation, because the structure's out of whack, right from the beginning, physical needs fall through and people get hurt. And that's real. Or there's a fifth option. The pastor repents, restructures the ministry by delegating responsibilities, which is what we see happening here in Acts chapter 6. It's the best of the five options. Or is it? You know, we're studying the book of Acts because we see that it's a blueprint for how to structure the church, for how to avoid problems, for how to implement solutions, you see, at Calvary 316, we want to learn from this example in Acts 6 and avoid all five options because there's drawbacks to all five of them. And instead, we want to sustain growth and ministry effectiveness right from the beginning, which is kind of the luxury we have to establish things now versus try to deal with issues later. You see, the key to handling a growing congregation and sustaining effective meeting of needs well, I believe it's establishing strong elders, well-defined elders, as well as deacons. You see, the elders, and this is where it can kind of break down because, well, we have apostles here, but what about apostles and what about pastors and bishops and elders? Really, there's kind of just basically two divisions of leadership that we find consistently throughout the church. There's elders and there's deacons, and the elders can go by bishop or pastor or overseer. Deacons, kind of a different category we'll get to in a moment. But elders. Elders, it's their job to care for the spiritual needs of the church. Though Calvary 316 is pastor-led, it's also elder-led. Because we don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. You see, we see that elders are also pastors in a functioning role, caring for spiritual needs of the people. Now, as the lead pastor or elder, my job is very simple. Above and beyond any other responsibility 
My job is to care for the spiritual needs of Calvary 316, this church. And I do so in two ways, teaching and studying God's word and intercessory prayer for you and your family. And I hope is evidenced by what takes place behind this pulpit on Sunday mornings. I mean, the Bible study might stink. You might not like it, but at least maybe we can agree that I put some thought into it, that I'm not up here winging it, that I actually take the responsibility of studying God's word and crafting a message for you that I take this with utmost responsibility. Once again, you might think I don't do a good job, but at least we can agree I work at it. Beyond this, my energies are also spent working on the organization of the church. Most pastors, as they're exhorting younger pastors in a growing ministry, they say at some point, you have to kind of get out of working within the organization and focus on working on the organization. It's the only way that the organization can thrive. And here, part of my job, in addition to teaching the word and praying, is to raise up and equip leaders. It's to establish vision and ministry direction, as well as the formation of organizational structures that can sustain growth. And I don't handle that on my own. The elders also lend a role. Now, I also should mention, because of the financial limitations of our church, a church of this size, during this particular season, because I'm the only paid individual that works here, I also handle the multimedia, the finances, event planning, ministry scheduling, and facility concerns. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. That's a recipe for disaster, Zach, because as we grow, as those needs grow, you're not going to be able to do that, and you're absolutely right. But we do feel that at this point in our church that the solution to those things will become very evident as our financial resources grow. See, it'll be easier to add staff to handle some of these things, which means as we grow, it's sustainable for me to begin to hand these things off in such a way that things don't fall through the cracks. Now, understand, the role of handling the spiritual needs of Calvary 316 is not something I do alone. I might be the one behind this pulpit teaching God's word, but I am not caring for the spiritual needs of the people by myself. If I did, don't forget, there's 12 men doing that here. But if I did, I can't do it all. I can't handle it all. To carry the spiritual burden for, for even 60, 70 people, like that kind of, like I'm having a hard time carrying that burden just for myself, yet alone everyone. See what I'm saying? And so that's why we view our elders as also being pastors to help carry these spiritual responsibilities. You see, God has raised up Andy, Joe and Trekin, and Larry Parkin, and Chad. The Lord has raised up other qualified men who don't stand behind this pulpit from week to week, but are still as active in dealing with the spiritual concerns of you week by week. Now, at this point, and this is kind of a little bit of home housekeeping. So if you're watching online, this doesn't matter at all. In addition to working here, because of our financial situation, I also work two other jobs that account for about 20 hours of my week. Now, I said 150 people a full-time pastor can handle. But I'm not a full-time pastor. We're not at the point in regards to our church life where I can be full-time. 20 hours a week 
is already allocated elsewhere. That's to keep the lights on in my house and pay the mortgage. So in order to ensure that no one person, myself included, gets burnt gets overburdened or burned out caring for the needs of the church, or that any of our families get taxed, or that needs fall through the cracks, we decided that we're gonna, I'm going to share even more of the responsibilities of handling the spiritual needs of the congregation than I've presently been, been handling. I think this is wise. Way of housekeeping, just so you know. In addition to overseeing our worship ministry and helping me with organizational issues, Andy will be handling formal counseling. Things that come up that require formal counseling, premarital counseling, marital counseling, any type of counseling. And that's going to be one of Andy's roles as a spiritual leader in our church, to meet with you, to care for you, to walk you through whatever it is that you're facing. Not that I wouldn't want to do it. I love counseling. But the problem is, is that it's going to be hard for me to get to you in the way that my schedule is currently constituted. And we don't want you to be lacking. So we've set up this situation where Andy's going to be handling the counseling. In addition to heading up our Sunday prayer meeting, important role of an elder, and helping with facility issues, Larry Parkin is going to start handling our hospital ministry. Going to the hospital is never fun for you or for anyone, let's be honest. And yet, in the moment of being there, there's a real physical need that your church, a spiritual need that your church needs to meet. That when you're there, it's nice to have a pastor show up to pray, to lend a hand, to minister to the family. Now here's the problem, because of our dynamic, it's hard for me to get to the hospital at a drop of a hat. I have a Bible class that I teach. I have other responsibilities and other roles. And so to make sure that your needs are met, Larry Parkin will be the contact when it comes to your needs in the hospital. Now, if Larry shows up, don't be like, Zach didn't show up, what's the deal with that? No, no, wait a second. We're carrying responsibilities. Larry is as much a pastor as I am. Your church is sending a pastor to be there, to minister, to care for you. We're just designating responsibilities to make sure we can be there. Also, in addition to event planning, advising me on financial issues, Joe, beginning this fall, is going to be taking over our Band of Brothers ministry. He's going to be overseeing it and organizing it and promoting it and handling it. Chad. Chad is one of our elders. In addition to overseeing, kind of being that guy that shakes your hand, introduces himself to you. Most of you are here. The first person you met was Chad. That's his job. That's his role. But Chad's perfect for that one-on-one -on -one relational ministry. So if you've got a need and you need a brother, and I can't be there, Chad will. As one of the pastors of our church. You see, we believe that sharing the responsibilities to care for the spiritual needs of Calvary 316 will ensure that no one person's overburdened, our families are not sacrificed on the altar of ministry, and we can more effectively minister to the people who call Calvary 316 home. And we believe that it's with this structure that, that sustainable growth can be handled. So, 
the problem in this church? Well, it was simple. Needs were falling through the cracks. That was unacceptable. The remedy to the problem. With the, the apostles realized, okay, we need to define our role. We need to be caring for the spiritual needs. Those are, that's massive. So we need to do that. And then we need to designate or, or, or to, to raise up other people to handle physical needs. And, and note that it's not that one's better than the other. They both work in harmony. You see, next Sunday, we're going to discuss the other role. The apostles would focus on prayer and the teaching of God's word, the spiritual needs. But then it would be the deacons that would be raised up who would handle the physical needs of the church. And next Sunday, we're not only going to dig into what a deacon is, explain how this looks like from Acts chapter 6, what this looks like in particular, but we'll also apply it to the church. And this is what also is cool. Next Sunday, we're going to present before you three deacons. We don't have deacons yet. We have elders. That was the first thing. But the Lord spoke to me through this passage, and it's time for our church to also have deacons. Now, don't freak out, because if you're a Southerner, you're like, deacons. Like, immediately, all kinds of negative connotations come flooding into your mind of like, I don't like, I never met a deacon I liked. It's funny, my, my uncle pastors a gigantic Southern Baptist church down in Coweta County. There's nothing on the marquee about being Baptist, but they are. And I was talking to him about deacons. And he goes, we don't have those. We won't have those. I said, well, why? why? He goes, well, in the church that I grew up, deacons like ran the church. It was a popularity contest. It was about power and control, which I look at scripture and I'm like, what? Like, how did that happen? And he goes, instead, we have servant leaders. I was like, oh, you do have deacons. You just don't call them deacons. He goes, yes, that's our strategy. Now, I think that that's kind of silly because if the Bible is going to brand certain words, like deacon, we'll let the Bible brand it, and we'll just try to correct the misconceptions that already exist concerning that particular role, and we'll get to that next Sunday. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.